Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, joined by my co-host, Steve Macias. Glad to be with you again, Andrea. The question we're going to tackle today has relevance in all our lives, whether we're parents or employers or people who serve in governing capacities in businesses, churches, or even the civil government. And the question is this, should a person's repentance for an action committed mean that the consequences should go away? Hmm. It's a, certainly a worthy question because a lot of us get confused on the idea of what, first of all, what repentance is. We've all heard sermons about how repentance is turning from your sin, but Without a foundation of God's justice and inside of that, an ethical code according to God's law, what happens to a repentant person can cause a lot of trouble. Uh, we can think of cases inside of our churches and our communities where there becomes this difficult area to manage where somebody is sorry for their sins, but yet we somehow need a closure on the consequence of what their sin did. So I'm thinking back, and this probably goes back a couple of decades, there was a prominent evangelical Christian broadcaster who was petitioning the U.S. government to remove the death penalty from a woman who was convicted of having committed the crime, and she wasn't denying that she did, but it was on the basis that she had now become a born-again Christian, and their request was don't have her receive the death penalty. There's lots of reasons to oppose the death penalty in the United States today. We have lots of folks who are listeners here who are sympathetic to kind of a libertarian perspective or who can see that there are injustices in the American system, both with prisons and with the application of the death penalty. There's disparity between people of different ethnic groups who receive the death penalty. But what is inescapable is that God in his law, which is perfect, holy, and without error, said that the consequence for certain crimes was the death penalty. And so what often happens is we begin to over-spiritualize our actions or to separate uh, a action from our spiritual identity. The kind of Hellenization of philosophy attempted to do this too by separating you know, the body and its actions from the soul and its feelings or its spiritual identity. But Christianity has always been a religion that holds these two things in tension. Our spiritual life and our physical life, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, they're all part of this one human identity. And what we see in situations like you're describing here is this really uh, desire to separate out kind of our spiritual salvation life from our actual you know, body and actions life. And the consequence is that all of God's standards are then ignored. There's now no justice for the victims of the crime. God is offended because you haven't carried out the punishments that he has demanded. And this woman 
who was supposed to be delivered from her sins, delivered from her crimes by the punishment, is now even shortchanged by this act of what would seem to be mercy, but is actually the contrary. It's injustice against her to deprive her of the just punishment for her crime. Now, some people would find that odd, to deprive her of the just punishment, but I'm told that in earlier times in American history, when a person was convicted of having committed a death penalty offense, that's when the chaplain would come in, talk to this person, encourage this person to not only accept the reality of his situation here on earth, but to look eternally, and that... When people say, well, I don't hold much to deathbed confessions or, you know, somebody who's about to face the hanging electric chair, whatever it was. But that's the point at which somebody is more than likely most able to hear because he or she is facing death. And that's the way it's been for a reason. Uh, There's two parts of the American criminal justice system that find their origins There's lots of parts, but there's two parts in this discussion that find their origin in the law of God. One is the idea of the death penalty, right? It's inescapably tied to God's law. God supports the idea that certain crimes uh, require death, but he also requires it to be done swiftly. What we see now, uh, contrary to deathbed conversions, is this false hope given to people that they could get off and get away with their sins. And so you have men in death row for decades and decades who never come to terms with the reality of their sentence because in the back of their heart, the original sin that has taken up lodge there still believes I might get away with this. And so there's really nothing forcing them to encounter the sin that they had. Whereas, as you mentioned, colonial times or other times in Western history or up until about 70 years ago, somebody who was brought to justice, you know, called to answer for their sins with the death penalty, they're literally brought to the reality of the consequence of their, of their action. And that is one of the ways that God uses his law as a means of mercy for those people who are in those sins. He makes the reality of his, of his grace, or the reality of salvation, or the reality of forgiveness come to bear on wicked hearts by reminding them that God is the true judge, not just at some future time, but right now. And you should face that and find confession so that you not only find mercy uh, through your prayers, but for eternity. And confession is much more than I'm sorry for what I did. I regret what I did. For the person on death row, since we're using that example, chances are that person isn't going to have an opportunity to do it again. But the confession that saves is confessing that only by means of the blood of Jesus Christ will I be saved from the burden of sin and guilt that I was born with and acted out throughout my life. So the thief on the cross confessed Christ as who he was, and when Jesus told him that he would be with him in paradise, notice he didn't say, okay, take him down now. He said he believed in me, so this consequence shouldn't befall on him, which the thief himself acknowledged he was guilty of. That's right. You say it well, that the thief on the cross has to stay on the cross. He doesn't climb down. And 
this there's a lot of things that end up with this in our theological world. Uh, Rushduni describes that our view of the law is really distorted in modern theological discussions because we don't really understand uh, the idea of keeping the law other than in a very uh, short-sighted and incorrect view of works versus grace. Uh, the Westminster Confession gives us this great idea that, that Adam was in the covenant of works um, until he fell, and then he was put into the covenant of grace. But most American thinkers, when they think about these type of categories, they confuse them in a way that the Westminster uh, authors did not intend. When they talked about covenant of works, they were not talking about law keeping. They were talking about the way that we get to uh, stay in the presence of God. And often we apply our own modern Roman Catholic versus Protestant paradigms to St. Paul's writings on the scripture, right? We tend to think when St. Paul says that we are no longer under the law, we confuse that with we are no longer required to keep God's commandments. And that if we were to say that, that God's law still binds on us today, that somehow we are participating in a works-based system of salvation. Uh, but what's really missed in that is that Adam in the very beginning even though it's described as a covenant of works, was truly brought to life by grace. He was sustained by grace. And every breath he took, every part of his life, he was living under grace because everything he did was uh, a gift of God. And what he did to lose his place in the covenant was not attempt to uh, break or, or uh, go against God's justice, what he did was try to come up with his own law, his own system. And men don't uh, go from covenant of works to covenant of grace in our personal lives. We go from a place where we are separated from God to a place that we are near to God. And this is really important that we understand it, because for God to entertain fellowship with men is a supreme act of grace. This is clearly two unequal parties. And so to indicate that even the giving of the law was somehow or other in opposition to God's grace shows a gross misunderstanding, but it really is a slap in the face to Jesus' work on Calvary. If the law was so insignificant and the consequences laid out in that law were so insignificant, it seems a very inefficient way to bring people to salvation if the death penalty or the consequences of people's actions aren't held up. And, and the way that the confession kind of puts it out, it says that God gave Adam a law, a covenant of works, uh, which he bound him and all of his posterity to keep uh, personally, entirely, exactly, and in perpetual obedience. And we often read that as Adam was given a promise and as long as he kept the promise and never sinned, then he would be saved. And so then when we talk about the covenant of grace, we often think of it the exact opposite. But what the covenant of grace does for Adam is it doesn't remove that obligation from him. But rather, what Jesus has done is empowered Adam to keep the promises of the covenant of works. So the consequences of sin... Uh, crimes, punishments, laws, sanctions, all of these things, 
They don't negate God's standards. They allow man to uphold the standards. They make where man falls short whole again. So when somebody commits a crime and they have to fit a punishment for it, it's not that somehow we've ignored the injustice of it, but the punishment makes whole what was broken in the covenant. And so for us to experience the grace of God is not to overlook our sins, but to repair our sins. The power of the gospel and grace is that we're able through it to be obedient unto God, even in its punishments when we fail to keep uh, the various laws it includes. And that really exposes a not only a misconception, but a source of irritation for a lot of people that rather than have individuals be viewed in terms of their adherence to God's law, many want to impose the niceness or the kindness of past acts or how good this person performs his or her duties as a reason not to have the person bear the consequence. And as a result, the whole idea of even raising children gets compromised because how can you teach them if you're going to excuse them because you're going to try to be nice as opposed to being just? We use the word law in other circumstances. Uh, Rushdeny often pointed out that this property that you know things fall to the ground when you drop, <laughs> drop them, this law of gravity, it's called a law because it applies evenly to everybody without exception. See, the laws are reflections of how God imagines the world to work. And what we sometimes do is we try to personalize the law to the point that it no longer looks like God. Uh, So a people of God who obey God's law, what they end up producing is a culture that reflects the attributes of God. So a marriage that's obeying the law of God is going to be a faithful husband and a faithful wife that procreates, that trains the next generation, that cares for their community. And so those ways that they obey God's law creates an image of God. uh, And it reveals kind of this natural idea of who God is. But a couple that then ignores the law of God creates a false image of who God is. And so it's not so much in that the law of God is this burden to weigh on top of us, but rather the law allows us to see God clearly. And so if we talk about rules, consequences, forgiveness, all of these different things, if we don't pay attention to how these reflect the the person of who God is, our religion that comes out of this, that excuses sin or makes excuses or looks the other way, begins to look more like this world than like the God who created us. And then you have this weird phenomenon. Instead of walking alongside the offended person and acknowledging the offense of the person and helping that person be restored to good spiritual health, we have people often petitioning those who are administering the consequence and making accusations and aspersions that say, well, you couldn't really be a Christian if this is how you're acting towards this person. And so, as you said earlier, with the person who's convicted, the application of the law and the benefits of the law are denied that person if instead of holding this person to a position of responsibility, this person's made a victim. That's right. It it comes back to the idea of what is good or what is kind. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of us confuse justice 
or fairness uh, with the world's identity of these things. We use this word nice. Uh, we confuse the idea of being Christian towards somebody or being graceful with being nice or, or gentle. And it's true that the fruits of the Spirit do encourage a certain demeanor from Christians, but we often put some strange unbiblical standard of niceness as if it could conflict with the law of God. If the law of God says that somebody who murders should be put to death, that is the nice thing to do to that person because that's the good thing, the true thing, the honest thing to do. And so this becomes difficult because so many of us live by humanistic standards of behavior. We look to the world or our own emotions or our community identity as the standard for what good is rather than a objective rather than arbitrary law of God that says, this is good, this is evil. And the sad part is you will talk past other people who profess belief if we don't share the same presuppositions. In other words, our duty and responsibility as believers is to not offend God, not first and foremost, not offend other people. And the best way to offend someone, truly, another person, is to not treat them the way you wish to be treated. But this shouldn't mean that you wish to be excused of your offenses. I mean, you, you look back in the Psalms, and as my husband likes to phrase it, David was often calling down artillery on his own position. He was saying, if I'm in sin, show me, have me bear the consequences, not excuse me because I call you father. Well, it's uncomfortable uh, to, to approach the scripture or the community that way. And there's lots of situations where it's this discomfort or this desire for pragmatism of wanting to get along or to have a good relationship with somebody who does something wrong that guides our actions more than the law of God. You can see this really clearly when the church has to deal with discipline. Reformed churches historically have believed uh, that somebody who has done an egregious sin and refuses to repent should be placed outside of the church. And um, every Reformed denomination, whether it's Presbyterian or Anglican or Congregationalist or Reformed Baptist, has historically practiced some form of excommunication. But today, uh, it's increasingly difficult to have people stand by that, because there's uh, this idea that excommunication might be unloving towards somebody, that if you excommunicate a young man uh, for his unbelief, then you'll you know, scare him away from the church forever, or you're going to damage his relationship with God, or they're going to just remember the church is very judgmental. Uh, but the opposite is true. God says that enforcing his covenant, his sanctions, are actually acts of love and grace. And so while we think of excommunication as maybe extreme in our culture because it's become increasingly rare, the ancient Christians would have seen this as the way you bring somebody back to the church is by holding fast to the standard. By putting them outside of the camp, you are actually exposing them to the grace of God. Right. Unfortunately, in today's Christian world, let's say a person is rightfully excommunicated, she or he can go down the street, show up in another church that's so glad to have a new person who walks in that 
the standards that were violated in the past often come right with that person, but because of antinomianism, there's no way to make a good, solid, biblical judgment on what's correct here. That's right. And the result is um, that this person never really gets to experience what the scriptures call uh, the buffeting of Satan. There's a spiritual reality that happens uh, when somebody is cut off from the, from the church. And anytime we attempt to kind of short circuit that process, we do a disservice to the person. It's actually not nice and unkind to welcome in an unrepentant sinner because you are doing them a great disservice. You're making an excuse for their sin. This is true of our of children who are unrepentant. This is true of our family members. This is true of our neighbors. We cannot win them in by our niceness. Only the conversion of the Holy Spirit can do this. And so if we put our own human efforts in the way of the buffeting of Satan and the restoration of them and true repentance, we are in the long term doing a great disservice to that individual. And this has implications for families, for churches, for the society, for, for movements in general. We have a lot of people who rightfully want to see the end of abortion. And yet, within the pro-life or those who are opposed to abortion community, there's a really stark difference on how you approach the topic. Who's truly the bad guy in this whole phenomenon? Well, we'll make it the abortionist or we'll make it the legislators that approve it. And by no means am I exonerating either of those two groups. God will hold them accountable. But I think you deny women who, for whatever reason, ended up having an abortion if you don't acknowledge and have them acknowledge that they took a life, unless, of course, like some places in China, against their will, their children were ripped from their womb, I think that's a lot to do with why we don't see traction. I mean, some of the most powerful speaking I've ever heard is when women who have had abortions get up, admit it, and talk about how they were cleansed from their sin and guilt. And now you see them being very vocal about their sin. They don't try to make themselves look better. They say it like it is. And they're not really worried that somebody will think poorly of them that in their past they had an abortion. Because they're not playing to that audience. They, they know who their audience is, God Almighty. That's right. And that audience is really important to the discussion here because when you talk about what the sin is, we can often get lost in circumstances of sin, right? Um, I felt like I had no other options. I wasn't fully informed on what was going on. But the, the idea of the God's law is very personal. Um, you're not necessarily sinning and that you broke a, a esoteric or convoluted law. You've sinned personally against the Lord in heaven. And so a lot of our justifications for sin try to look around our own circumstances and say, uh, but there were these other factors. And don't we all sin? Aren't, all sins, aren't we all sinners? But God speaks to us in blessings and curses and sanctions. And uh, those personal sanctions tie back to our individual sins. And because of that, because the sin and its kind of punishment is personal, the punishment is part of that personal relationship we have with God. 
And if we say, well, society is to blame because it doesn't take care of women or the culture is to blame because she didn't feel like she had any options or wasn't uneducated, we take away from the individual the authority to be their own agent, uh, to be their own person. And uh, God's law makes it so that each and every one of us are, are judged uniquely and given the opportunity for repentance and salvation uniquely. This is what gets us away from Roman Catholic ideas of salvation by works. And, and this is how it's truly of faith, because God is interacting with you and giving you a new heart. And that transformation, Jesus said, should be obvious to others. And that's why we were told not to judge people by their professions, but to judge people by their fruits. And I think some of the humanism that is too pervasive in a lot of Christians' thought is that if we come down on someone's offense for doing something clearly wrong with a clear consequence for it, am I indicting myself for my past? Am I indicting myself for things I have going on right now or I might do? And so there's this cushion of reasonableness that says it's really not that big an offense. But that in itself is the violation of the great commandment to love God completely, more so than you love yourself, your comfort, your reputation, or your ability to make money. Yeah, and when you, when you talk about consequences, um, we talk about how sin affects people. Uh, it's true that sin is going to affect different people. Different people are going to see the weight of their sin differently. Uh, but this is kind of a, a bigger discussion in theonomy and the Reformed world because what's often overlooked is kind of our basic idea of karma that we've accepted because we're Americans or because we're in the 21st century, that we're basically good enough if we're Christians. And we can just come on Sunday and renew our forgiveness. And that there is somehow a restart button on our actions. And what the law of God reveals is that there are long-term consequences, even to the forgiven people for what they've done. Um, we read the Ten Commandments every Sunday in our church, and it says, you know, the curse is upon your children your, and your children's children. And there's this idea that your sins that you commit today don't just affect you personally. And so they have to be confessed and treated as affecting a whole community of people. And we can see today that as the consequences of sin are removed from our culture, while we take out the death penalty, we take out uh, the requirement to observe rest on Sundays, we take out all of the, the little things that we think are no big deal. And then pretty soon we find that our culture, 20, 30 years down the road, is missing big chunks of, of children uh, through uh, the sin of abortion, is missing the respect for human life. It's because the sin that we have, although we should personally confess, it doesn't just affect us. Uh, it, it has an effect on those around us as well. So God's law being restorative is good for the sinner to go through the punishment, to face the consequences, but it also serves as an example for the community and the next generation by 
addressing that sin right away. We're able to restore the culture back to where it belongs. A little bit of sin on the bottom of our culture gets larger and larger and then will pop up in the future. It doesn't go away as much as we want to hide it. The culture of 40 years ago that refused to encourage tithing, that refused to hold our marriage covenants personally, refused to encourage people to have their children rather than embrace contraception. All of these people who sent their kids to public schools versus Christian education, they're seeing the consequence of their sin bear out in more than just the personal rebellion of individuals, but it has a widespread consequence on culture at large. We often hear sociologists talk about the reason why capital punishment is so important is because it discourages other people from being murderers. Well, all of God's law kind of works in this type of way. The more we pay attention to God's law, it has a effect on the other parts of our culture too. By obeying God and keeping his commandments, we can expect that every sphere of society, politics, uh, education, our vocation, everything is going to be purified and uplifted because we're removing the consequences of sin by enforcing God's sanctions. Right, exactly. You know, you were making reference to visiting the sins of the Father onto the third and fourth generation of those that hate me, which is the second commandment. What I think happens a lot is people want to hijack the second part of that to suit their own ends. It goes and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Keep those commandments by not violating God's law, but they also keep those commandments by administering the consequences for violations otherwise. And so mercy has been hijacked to mean something other than that commandment clearly states it to me. And we, we often read the Bible wrong this way. How did St. Paul and Jesus imagine a Jew would be saved in the first century? Now, we often hear the Bible story told of evil Pharisees wanted everybody to keep the commandments, and here comes Jesus to free them to just live their life in grace, and who cares what mistakes they make because they have Jesus. The reality was, it was the Pharisees who are most like Americans today. They made up all kinds of rules, uh, much like Americans do, about a higher level of morality that wasn't reflecting the law of God, and they punish people for not keeping their own laws. What St. Paul and Jesus want us to remember is that through the gospel, through grace, we are now empowered. We are given the tools not only to come back when we fail to keep God's law, but to move forward inside of that obedience. It's impossible for us to keep God's law apart from God. The Pharisees proved that. The Romans proved that. I proved that on a daily basis. But what salvation is, is us coming to the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, this is what God has said, and Christ's death allows me the strength to uphold his law uh, and, and to met out his purpose for this world. And then rather than fighting the consequences for your own actions, you embrace your responsibility, you receive it in a mature, godly fashion, and then as in many cases of people will tell you that God restores you so that it's not that because you had to pay this penalty, this fine, this restitution, this amount of time without freedom to do whatever you wanted to be able to do, that God's grace is working on you there. 
so that you still end up the recipient of God's grace in the midst of receiving God's judgment and justice. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, and it's the picture in the scripture is like a tree. And how do you uh, receive grace? Well, God says it's like a tree that's planted alongside uh, living waters. Uh, apart from the law of God, uh, we are a tree that is thirsty for direction. We are a tree thirsty for purpose. We are a tree thirsty for justice. Um, and God's law is this river that comes alongside of us. And through his word, uh, both the 10 big words and all the various case laws, his standards, standards for marriage and life, our lives are nourished. You know, the, the law comes into our bodies through the grace of God, and it gives us a structure, a form, a purpose for how we are to live our lives. Too many of us live in this kind of uh, serendipitous or you know, ecstatic view of spirituality. God does not just come willy-nilly raining down on the people through grace. Grace comes in the form of his word, and he gives us that structure through his law. And I think Rajduni really has addressed this in his book, The Cure of Souls, because he doesn't pit God's law against God's grace and mercy. He, he looks at them as a combined thing, and I, I think it's a most useful book in terms of really understanding true confession and what I alluded to before, that it's more than just saying, I know I did wrong. True confession says, I know my only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. That's right. And we have to escape this idea of, of neutral moral state. Um, some of you who are theologically minded have heard uh, Roman Catholic theologians talk about kind of like a state of grace. You go to confession, the priest forgives you your sins, and now you have a blank slate and you're going to go and... Uh, <laughs> hopefully keep that up. That's the kind of merit-based theology that a lot of people live on, even if they're not Roman Catholic. I said my prayer, as long as I don't do a particularly evil sin, I can stay in the Christian church, and when I die, I'll go to heaven. But that's really not how how God portrayed the creation of Adam or his bride, uh, the church. Adam has always been sustained by grace. So everything you've done has been under the gift of God. And so when we sin against God, it's not that we have failed to keep his standard. It's that now he's using our shortcomings as a way to bring us back to the full place of who we are to be. So it's not about law keeping in the sense of a score of this is how many laws I kept versus this is how many law I broke. It's this is what sanctification is. It's as I mature, as a child matures to an adult, I'm going to make mistakes. And the wisdom that God gives us to grow us and to heal us is his standards, his law. And so the kind thing, the nice thing, the Christian thing is to lean into those standards and say, where is God attempting to make me whole? And if we resist God's correction and by rejecting his law, then we're pushing away this call of grace that the God who made you has to really grow you into uh, salvation. 
So sanctification, we should expect some growing pains, don't you think? Yes, it's it's a natural consequence of this great Calvinist doctrine of <laughs> of original sin, right? So we should expect that as we go through our life, we're going to make mistakes. And the way that we're grown through those mistakes is by coming back to God's standards. If you think of um, a calfling who breaks its leg, um, it doesn't continue to walk on that leg. It waits for the for the, the farmer or the shepherd to come bandage up that leg to give it structure, healing, uh, maybe a, a bandage or some type of cast to hold it in its place, to bring it back to where it's supposed to be. And then when it heals together, the bone is even stronger. That's how uh, sanctification works. Uh, as we go out and do all that we're called to do and make mistakes, the Lord's law comes in and calcifies our soul towards him. It kind of strengthens our ability to get closer to him. Uh, and eventually we'll reach a place where uh, we've passed from this life to the next and we welcomed into perfection and we can look back at our, our life of broken bones and mistakes and the ways that we came back to God's standards. And where what you just said is very true, I think that we'll also have the ability to receive that benefit while we're still here on earth. I know in many of the counseling and mentoring and teaching situations I find myself in, a good portion is sharing with other people, I thought I knew what I was supposed to do 30 years ago. I was really proud of it. I was sure God was really pleased with me because of it. But the more I learn about God and his word, the more I realize that I was serving myself rather than serving him. So let me give you an insight as to some of the traps you might fall into. That calcification, as you talked about, enables us to further do the work of advancing the kingdom because we don't have any confusion that says, look at all that I've achieved. It's truly there, but for the grace of God, um, I would be just like I was then and you might be experiencing now. Certainly so. And it's really, uh, you're missing something if you're not getting that, right? So there's, there's a part of the Christian life uh, that you will never grow into if you refuse to come back to God's law. Uh, St. Paul says that there are some who have milk and then when they get older, they move to meat. To refuse to follow God's standards is to be a perpetually immature Christian. It's to be a perpetually infantile Christian. It's not kind, it's not nice to leave somebody in a state of baby. <laughs> uh, but that's what a lot of Christian theology does. Today, we attempt to overlook the law of God, and what it does is it creates a, a Christianity that's, as we've said before, uh, a mile wide and an inch deep. If we really want people to have meaningful personal relationships with God that last their entire lives, we have to be willing to expect them to grow. And we shouldn't confuse when Paul talks about you're still children drinking milk because he wasn't saying something tender and kind. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means. I know some Greek words. But the term that was used is idiotes, meaning like idiots. It's our word idiot. So if you continue years and years and years not understanding and applying the realities, the, the, the mild, deep realities of God's law, then you're an idiot. 
Yes, and you have to wonder, um, people who spend 40 years doing the same thing again, which which God are they chasing after? Um, Jesus is willing to invite you to come deeper and deeper. And so if you're still out in the shallow waters decades later, there's something that you're not doing, um, that, that this should be a wake-up call for you to, to come and, and try the the other side of the pool here. Well, I think we've kind of covered the topic. I want to make a shameless plug, and that shameless plug is currently calcedonteachertraining.com has an ongoing study of Rush Dooney's book, Revolt Against Maturity. It's a study for women. We meet one day a week, and we have women from all over the country and sometimes outside of the country participating But the goal is to be able to understand a mature relationship to God and uncover those areas in our own lives where maybe we're saying, no, God, I I don't want your consequences. I want things on my terms. So if you're interested in participating, I invite you to uh, send a note via out of the question podcast at gmail.com and I'll send you the information about that study. Any closing thoughts on your end, Steve? Well, this is why uh, Dr. Rushton wrote his systematics, uh, because we need to have a full-orbed view of the Christian life. Um, And anybody who listens to this podcast understands that there's more to being a Christian than Sundays and a prayer for salvation. And so I I hope that when people think about uh, joining your group, that they would do so. Uh, with the intention of growing in grace by understanding God's law. That's our prayer as well. Well, thank you, listeners. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.